When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Fuse, a bomb podcast. In each episode, we bring together artists to discuss their work and creative practice. We've been taking this approach since 1981, delivering the artist's voice. Here's how it works. Bomb invites a distinguished artist to choose a guest from any creative discipline, an art crush, a close collaborator, or even a stranger they've admired from afar. And we bring them together. For this episode, we asked artist, mother, and activist, Tanya Yiwaniga, which artist she'd most like to speak with. She named visual artist and curator Julio Cesar Morales. When I was asked to, you know, to participate in this podcast and to pick somebody, and they were wanting to see if there was anyone that was going to be in the platform section of the Armory show, I was looking through, you know, the list of artists, and and then when I saw your name, I was like, oh my god, I cannot believe this is the same person, and I cannot believe that he's also from Tijuana. And then I didn't know that, and then I hadn't put everything together. I grew up in Tijuana also, and this opportunity has been a super huge gift just for me to be able to like take a snorkel deep dive into like finding out more about your work and about your history. This episode is in partnership with The Armory Show. Both artists appearing in the episode are part of the curated sections of the fair's 2022 edition. Tanya Iguaniga's work is presented by Volume Gallery in Focus, curated by Carla Acevedo Yates, while Julio Cesar Morales's piece, La Línea, is presented by Gallery Wendy Norris in Platform, curated by Tobias Ostrander. Julio Cesar Morales investigates issues of migration, underground economies, and labor on the personal and global scales. Morales's practice explores diverse mediums specific to each project or body of work. He has painted watercolor illustrations that diagram human trafficking methods, employ the DJ turntable, produced video and time-based pieces, and reenacted a famous meal. Morales' artwork has been shown at SF MoMA, Museo Rufino Tamayo, LACMA, Hammer Museum, Yucca Roma, among others. Tanya Yiguaniga, an artist, designer, and craft person, works with traditional craft materials like natural fibers and collaborates with other artists and activists to create sculptures, installations, performances, and community-based art projects. In her installations, furniture, and wearable designs, Tanya often works with cotton, wool, and other textiles, drawing upon Mesoamerican weaving and traditional forms. Her solo exhibitions include Smithsonian American Art Museum and the Museum of Arts and Design. Additional exhibitions have been held at Annenberg Space for Photography and the Craft and Folk Art Museum, among others. In this episode, they discuss the versatility of the border experience, unlikely influences, 
and functional art practices. Do you usually identify as like transfronterizo, Chicano, Mexican-American, Latinx? How do labels, I guess, like work for you? According to what they want to hear, I tell them I'm a naturalized citizen. So I don't say I'm American, Mexican, or Chicano. I, I just say I'm, I'm a naturalized citizen. And some of them are surprised by that. With work stuff, giving like a lecture about your like art, how do you usually identify? You know, first generation immigrant from Mexico. You know, there's so many different labels. I think when we were working on the Phantom Siding show after the Chicago movement basically was the subtitle. And we were interviewed, a lot of the artists about, you know, do you represent yourself as Chicano? You know, how do you represent yourself? And I think it depends on the context that you are, whether you're yeah. crossing the border, you're one thing. If you are representing a country in a Miami, you're another thing. So once I represented Mexico, once I represented the United States. And so, you know, it's, it's like using that duality to your comfort, to what you can use it, because it can be very derogatory, very traumatic as well. And, you know, why do you also have to associate to just one way of being because in a border experience you experience multiple things in different languages and different contexts and different economies and so in a way it took me a while to figure out that that's very versatile as an artist as it as an experience because when you are in Tijuana people in Mexico don't consider border towns actual real quote-unquote real Mexico same thing with border towns in the United States, like El Paso or San Isidro. That's really not the United States because it is yeah. this free-flowing, I don't know, third space, perhaps. For sure. For sure. Yeah, no, it's the weirdest thing. And I think that's why, like, I like talking about this stuff with people that are actually, like, from the border. Because I think we all understand the existence of this, like, third culture that's created and how... We relate to and belong to both sides, but also to neither in a way. Um, and how I think, and I'm not sure if it's like this, you know, in other large border towns, but I feel like in Tijuana, everything is always like analog because everybody has to kind of figure out like how to like cobble together a way of surviving, you know? And so then you have to kind of like constantly like hustle and like, constantly yeah like okay like this label goes with this label like this word doesn't exist so I'm gonna make up the word and I'm gonna like just figure out how to like get through because I gotta just keep going and keep moving you know there is this urgency of survival that I felt that I feel being in the border town either if you're one side or the other side but it's true what you're saying that you know it's a visceral thing as well yeah and I think it's important for people to kind of understand the complexity and the layers of like our existence and how we are like a really integral part of both countries. I mean, even like from the Mexican side, like I was in Mexico City one time and some taxi driver was like, oh, you're from Tijuana. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I thought nobody lived there no more. I thought that was the Forgotten Lands. Wow. And so I was like, holy shit. Yeah, like for a lot of people, the border is a forgotten land because, you know, unless you're hearing about the physical fence or immigration issues or violence issues, like you 
people don't really think that there's vibrant communities that exist on the border that want to live there and that are happy living there. Because I think, yeah, we're like constantly painted as as maybe people that don't want to be there. And I think he's also referring to no tourism anymore. You don't have Marines going to party in Tijuana. You don't have underage kids with fake IDs. And that really was a huge amount of economy in Tijuana. And after the narcos and all that started happening, you know, basically there's really no more tourists and the locals took over, you know, the whole um, tourist area and made it their own. You know, now there's galleries, there's amazing restaurants. I remember going to dinner with my uncle and we were in Revolucion Avenue where all the bars used to be. And he said, I I haven't been here since I was a kid because this was not for me. This was only for gringos. And now they've created their own communities within the areas that used to be designated only for tourists. Yeah, and I think that was the like really amazing like combination. Also like September 11th, I think really killed, you know, like I was taking my mom 11 hours a day to cross the border. Cause my mom, my parents still live in Tijuana, but my mom worked at Vons at the grocery store in San Isidro. And so then, yeah, to go a few blocks, it would take her that long. I mean, it was amazing what happened after these different waves, right, of stuff. Not saying that obviously that 9-11 was amazing, but the lack of tourism in Tijuana, you know, which I don't know a lot of people if they know, but a lot of Tijuana, the growth happened first because of prohibition. So our like proximity to the U.S. and being a place where like the U.S. comes to play has always like largely shaped the focus of a lot of border towns as well as like maquiladoras and production of goods. But anyways, yeah, no, it's been so incredible to see. I have two younger sisters and all of the amazing stuff that they got to grow up with, you know, and and talking about like, it felt like such an amazing like cultural revolution that happened with like Nortec and with like the music scene, you know, pairing up with like fashion and art and all this stuff. It totally just like revolutionized our spaces. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was so phenomenal to witness. I remember seeing uh, Nortec at the Hialeah. That's the fastest game in the world. The ball is going 90 miles an hour. And then all of a sudden you have this phenomenal music that is helping create this culture. And all of a sudden, Tijuana was on the cover of Time magazine. And I ended up being friends with the majority of everyone there. And I remember talking to Pepe Mook and he had this beautiful way of describing how Norte came about because when Revolución was still with lots of tourists, if you stand in a specific corner, you could hear Norteño music, which was the red light district. And then you can hear techno music with your right ear because that's the tourism. And he said, if you stood at the same area, that was the sound that evolved of Norte, where, you know, it's pretty amazing where they would, instead of using bass, in electronic music, like you usually do, they would use trombones as the bass. So super amazing, creative things were happening in Toro Lab and Tanya Candiani, all these amazing artists from Tijuana just made it this phenomenal scene. And and that really, I think, helped the culture in, in Tijuana survive those, those years in the early 2000s. For sure. And I feel like it provided such a place of like pride for everybody and also to like 
to like reclaim space, physically reclaim space that had for the majority of like my parents' lifetime and everybody's lifetime been spaces that, you know, like Americans came to piss on. The spaces they came to like piss and fuck on. And to be able to take these places like the old theaters that were abandoned for so long that could never have like theater productions anymore, but to have these amazing parties was just, oh my God, it was such an amazing feeling to see the spaces come back to life and places like discotheques that like my parents partied at. And then all of a sudden I'm partying in those spaces too. Like it was just really beautiful to have some sort of continuum and and yeah, like reclaiming of space. I mean, and it's really interesting because in those kind of situations, you rarely have music that becomes the leader in in changing culture in that sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it was young people. It was anything from musicians to architects like uh, mm-hmm. Raul from Toro Lab. It was just so uh, wonderful to be there and witness that. And, and then it went out into the world. All of a sudden, a lot of these artists were having shows in Europe and the United States. And I think also a big supporter was uh, San Diego Museum of Contemporary Art. Oh, for sure. I feel like that energy in your work. Like when I see your work, and I don't know if it's because the pieces that are more like graphic, if it's speaking in a similar language to like what I remember of like a bunch of Toro Lab stuff, but it feels like in a continuum of like this really amazing energy, but also like I can feel like the musicality in your work. A lot of that is because I grew up in Zona Norte next to the red light district. And so I always loved hand-painted signs, you know, all the amazing neon from the old bars. I actually, and then I ended up working with Totolab on on some t-shirts where I actually, you know, did a series of outlines of street vendors, you know, and then I went to school. I went to Southwestern College. A lot of people from Tijuana, like Sergio de la Torre and Ivan, all these amazing artists, we all went to the same school because it was a a junior college, it was inexpensive and it was great. And so I actually began studying design. I didn't um, start studying art. I was uh, officially in, into design and I love aspects of that. And only recently I've come back to kind of do that with the neon signs and other photographic works that I'm doing now. But that's always been a big influence to me. What you mentioned, the vibrancy of Tijuana, the Zona Norte, and all of that really, you know, it kind of surfaces. I'm, I'm glad you see that. Yeah, no, that's so awesome. And like even, yeah, like hearing you like explain stuff, it makes so much more sense and feels so much more alive to me. Like I can feel like the kind of weird like living connection to like now being able to see it, you know, and it's like, it's like totally like it has a pulse. But yeah, I went to Southwestern College too. I was there, it was a two-year college. I was there for seven years. I also started... Well, I ended up getting a master's in design and an undergrad in design. So my background is in furniture design. I know. I, I saw uh, that when I was looking at your website. I was wondering how, how does that play into your work now? I know that you use... One of the things that I love is your use of fiber yeah. and how you deconstruct and construct these really amazing installations. Thank you. So I started getting into design just out of being like a really creative person that always wanted to do art but you know because of my parents crossing the border every day and like how hard it was for me to even just be like in school in the U.S. like physically the amount of like 
energy it took for me to get there. And so when I, my dad and my uncle worked at NASCO, at the shipbuilding company in National City. <laughs> yeah. And so my dad was a ship grinder. So they would put a, like a 40 pound grinder strapped onto his body and throw him over the side of a battleship and he would grind the welds with his body. And so, yeah, like I felt like as someone that grew up working class and my parents are both from Colonia Libertad, so they both grew up right next to the fence, next to the border crossing. Like my dad dropped out of school in eighth grade. The ideas of like what art is were never, like I was never exposed to, like I never got to go to art museum. I got to go to like lowrider shows, but I didn't get to go to art museum. And so the idea of like telling my family like, oh, I want to study art was just like super sacrilegious. You know, it was like the biggest like slap to like everybody's face, like for multiple generations. And so I was like, all right, I have to figure out what I can study that's actually like a useful thing that I can like, I can get a job as a cabinet maker. I can like, if I'm a badass welder, like nobody's going to take those props away from me. Like I'm going to be a badass welder. And so I first got like drawn to making functional work and to learning about functional stuff through just wanting to like have something that my dad could relate to. Like they could understand like, oh yeah, like you can sit on it. Cool. You can sit on it. (laughs) And, And then later now that I've like, you know, been like involved in craft longer, I think a lot of it was looking for places of connection to ancestry, to lineage because of our lack of that through like forced migration, you know, like our families having to move up to Tijuana because of poverty and the border being somewhere that's not that connected to like, you know, Mexican culture and to tradition. I think I just really like yearned for a rooting. And so then that's how I started getting into the world of like craft was through function. And then, yeah. My grandfather and grandmother moved during Prohibition because, you know, they were coming from Guadalajara. So they moved to Tijuana because before it was, there was 5,000 people only. And then after Prohibition, there was just so many people going there for work. But I mean, you know, I've worked a lot with artists from Guadalajara where Uh the craft is just so instinctive and inherent that they don't think of it as craft. But, you know, what what were some of the first things in Mexican craft or indigenous Mexican craft that you gravitated towards? So the first things that I, like, fully, like, it just, like, took me over and I'm still in it is fiber. So I was lucky enough because my family also never traveled anywhere because all of our family was in Tijuana on both sides. (laughs) So my mom's family is actually from Carlos Otitlan. So from one hour north of Guadalajara, but her family, because of poverty and she became an orphan really young, they never went back. So I didn't grow up with like having ties to Jalisco. And so the first big award that I got when I was um, 27, I was like, okay, this is, this is when I'm going to go travel like to some parts of Mexico and find out like what it's about, you know? And so I ended up going to Puebla, Oaxaca, and Chiapas just to kind of do like a survey with me and my sister. And as soon as I got to, I had already started learning weaving in grad school. 
But as soon as I got to San Cristobal de, la Casas, de las Casas in Chiapas, and yeah, and witnessed, you know, backstrap weaving, that, like, I mean, that was, like, mind-blowing just to see, like, how the body is so intricately connected to an outcome and to a material and how a material can actually be a witness to whatever's happening in your in your body and in your mind and like that direct connection between yourself and your movement and your intuition to like making of something yeah just like totally blew my mind and when I got to Oaxaca I was going to all the different craft villages to see you know what it is that people make and I got to Teotitlan del Valle which is where the it's the weaving village that's been weaving for thousands of years and they had these massive looms that looked really heavy and really kind of hard to use. And so I asked them, you know, why is it that you weave on these looms? And uh, they were like, oh, because the Spanish brought them. And then when I got to Chiapas and I asked women, oh, why do you weave with a backstrap loom? And they're like, well, because we always have. And so at that point, I was like, holy shit, I have a choice. Like, I don't have to, you know, work with stuff because it's shown to me or given to me or that I'm taught on it, I actually can like question the materials, the methodologies, the tools. And then that's when I started getting deeper and deeper into like working with fiber and it, and really using it to talk about. And uh, But I mean, you're also creating custom sort of styling of creating the work too, aren't you? Yeah. So I ended up figuring out like how to develop techniques that could be taught to anybody and that don't have like no up, no down. Like you can throw it off of a roof and it'll survive. Like there's a lot of, you know, like preciousness kind of taken away from it. And yeah, it's like cooking. Like we all get to kind of do our own thing, kind of, you know, letting the language come out of your hands that you have, like your signature, you know, like we all write differently. So we all tie things differently we all like yeah so I ended up figuring out different ways of of just having what comes out be more connected to like your intuition and your body I noticed that one one of my biggest influences as well was border arts workshop yeah so I was part of the border art workshop I was lucky enough to see them when they were still the majority of them together before I moved to San Francisco to go to the San Francisco Art Institute but I became friends with Richard Liu he was in one of my last shows. It was called Soul Mining, and it was about the influence of Asian culture in Latin America. Oh, that's and so awesome. And he's half Chinese, half Mexican. And if you remember, he has this beautiful piece where he installed a, a door, door with yeah. 137 keys. And when you look at the image from the late 80s, there's no border fence. There's just yeah. bob wire that's been broken, and he places the, the piece there. It's really... A phenomenal piece, but I, I wanted to ask you, what was your involvement or your experience working with Border Arts Workshop? That was like the best thing to come out of like me going honestly to school uh, was I ended up going to Southwestern College and I met Michael Schnorr. Yeah, one of the founding members of the Border Art Workshop. And so he's the one that kind of kept it going into the 2000s. So after a lot of the like major artists had like moved on. Michael kept it going. And so he asked me to be part of the border art workshop. And so I was, I was part of it from 97 to 2003. And so at that point, they weren't doing a lot of performance work. They weren't doing a lot of 
site-specific installation stuff. They weren't really exhibiting that much. A lot of the work was really about focusing on migrant rights and focusing on like using art as a tool for empowerment and like radical change. And so when I was a part of it, the majority of our time was spent um, working in a town called Maclovio Rojas, which is, yeah, an autonomous community um, that's all run by women in Tijuana. And so then I worked there co-building and running a school. Uh, We also had a sculpting school that we built to teach people how to make their own headstones because we also built a cemetery. I was in charge of building a reproductive health center, soccer fields. We did tons of like really amazing programs with children, but then also spent a lot of time like helping with infrastructure, like making sure that all the wires were raised up in the, like on poles and stuff so that children and, and like animals wouldn't get electrocuted when it would rain because everybody was tapping in the maquiladoras, water and electricity because as an autonomous community, they didn't have running water, schools, police, electricity, any type of services. Um, so then we helped, you know, with anything that we could, but also using art as a way to bring attention to what was happening and the governmental brutality because this community was autonomous and fighting for their rights. And it's also one of the most dangerous places in Tijuana. And it's, yeah. it's very famous in a way for vernacular architecture where people would build houses made from old garage doors that would come from California. Yeah, and that was, um, it was $16 a door. And you would, you know, so for under a hundred bucks, you can get five and then you'd have a house. And the reason why it grew so big and so many people wanted to be there was because as an autonomous community, they also would give you land for free if you agreed to be part of the community. And so then you would have to work. So it was this collective way of existing as a community and helping each other. And a lot of it was tied to to the Zapatistas. A lot of it was tied to, to really amazing ideas of how, you know, like we could exist differently. Right. And, and uh, really like what you mentioned, how art can make, you know, social change. With your involvement, it sounds like it really did. And for people who don't know Border Arts Workshop, it's a collective of artists from both sides of the border that have been working together since the 80s. People like Guillermo Gomez Peña was part of it. Yeah. And so it's always been kind of redeveloping itself. And I'm glad that Michael was still there to keep it alive and do amazing projects like what you were doing. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, I mean, it was different because like he was the only, like he was like an elder, you know, and he was also, you know, a white man. There's also that, which has to get, you know, named. And the majority of us that were working were his students, you know, and a lot of us were women. And so the way that we learned stuff, we still learned really amazing things, but If he was alive now, I would love to have some amazing conversations and questions about like how all the stuff rolled out. I also wanted to ask you, I'm really amazed to be in this project at the Armory. I've worked with Tobias before in Miami and at the Tamayo Museum in Mexico City. And you're on the other platform series as well. I'm wondering what you're showing. 
So I'm there with my gallery, with Volume Gallery, and the works are these pieces that I made in the pandemic. So the series that I started in the pandemic, and the series is called Extraño. So, you know, in Spanish, Extraño means strange, but it also means I miss, like I miss it. And I, you know, so it's, yeah, like missing, but also strange. And so really exploring, making works that are just like a little bit absurd, a little bit surreal, but still they're all like these very like linear kind of poetic, like knitted pieces that are all hand dyed in this very like watercolory, like experimental way. And they're, I guess, probably the closest thing that I've made to just like pure sculpture, you know, that doesn't have a lot of real intense, like social justice spin on it. And some some of the sculptures are, you know, obviously very much like sculptures. It's hard for me to describe the things that they hold for me, but they hold a lot of, yeah, I guess the strangeness of the pandemic, like yearning for like just happiness and things that are just a little bit off. They have a bunch of synthetic hair in them. And a lot of it was like thinking about like Kodorowsky films and thinking, <laughs> and thinking, just thinking about like uh, Holy Mountain and thinking about like minimalist, Art, which was the first things that I got like gravitated to when I my first introduction to art was working at the San Diego Museum of Art <laughs> and and I was obsessed with the Robert Irwin pieces um, and so I started getting really obsessed yeah when I first found out about art with these minimalist yeah with minimal art and um, so for me the pieces these pieces from the Sextaño series yeah, kind of have a bunch of really weird, like, surrealism, like Latin American surrealism, but also like minimalism and like Bruce Nauman neon works. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I love your choices of color. Sometimes it's muted. Sometimes they're really bright, but I like the, the sort of rhythm that happens in your Thank choice you. of color. So I can kind of see now how you're talking about the, the Bruce Nauman neon and the Irwin. So... How has your, like, your thoughts about, like, the borderlands or the themes that come up in your work changed as you've moved to, like, San Francisco and to Arizona? Like, did they change or did they stay the same? I've always worked with family experiences where, you know, in my family it's very diverse where you'll have a police officer or you'll have a drug dealer or a judge, and it runs that kind of gamma. And so it's always been like a lot of family stories or, you know, my aunt telling me about this new way of smuggling people or drugs. And so a lot of that kind of street scholarship comes from stories I hear. But then it changes. It, it, I think it changed even more drastically when I moved here to Arizona. And I've been here 10 years now. And again, being more close to the border, there's a lot more influence of that coming into the recent work that I've made. And the work that I'm doing for the Armory is Neon. Mm -hmm. And it's the neon of the border, the U.S.-Mexico border today. And then there's one that is from 1845, when this was still Mexican territory. And there's one from the 1600s, before Europeans came to the Southwest. And then there's one for the future of 2028, when New Mexico and California become their own sovereign areas. 
So that's what's being presented. But, you know, I think being here and being closer to the border, you know, the, I think some of the work has shifted to being more direct about those issues. And, you know, I also want to ask you as an artist, you always feel compelled to do work that is based on the border. For me, sometimes it's hard to detach, but I can make like what you're saying, like more abstracted work, but somehow it's still sort of in there. Yeah, I try, like if something feels really urgent to be addressed, then it just, it has to come out, you know? But I'm really lucky that because I also have the Ambos project, so which is Art Made Between Opposite Sides, which is a project that I founded in 2016. Because I have that as like another conduit, then some of the, the strictly border-based work and strictly like social justice and like community-based work, I can kind of fit under that umbrella if I don't want it to be in the same space as works that are consumable. Yeah, so sometimes I'm able to separate them. And I think that's the hard thing for me and why I was having such a hard time explaining what I'm going to have at the Armory is that I I still have this great sense of guilt for making work that is just, just because, you know? And I think that there's so much amazing like liberation and like healing that happens and being able to like allow myself to do that and to take back a lot of things that were taken away from like generations of my family. Like the freedom of being able to to just make something beautiful that is just like a pure expression of like joy. It's kind of hard to sit with sometimes when it's like, oh shit, but you know, but the on the opposite side, what's really good is that because I do so much social justice work, then the sale of those things allows me to be able to pay for a bunch of just straight up like humanitarian work, you know? It's also a strategy, like we talked about the watercolors that I do. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's almost a strategy where you want it to be aesthetically beautiful. And when people notice, oh, that's a little kid inside a piñata, you know, then there's like, oh, okay. But in fact, it is about this content. It is about, you know, U.S.-Mexico relations. It's it's about the border. You know what I mean? So I always felt that the work I I do, that I have to do always aesthetically somehow um, engages you. But then the other layer is the truth of it or the content of where it's coming from. So in a way, I've, I've always figured I had to work that way in order to talk about some of these issues. So I love how you have your other um, Ambos project, and then you have your, not gallery practice, but your other practice. And, and it's nice to have, that's how I figure curatorial in my work. It's uh-huh. almost like Ambos, and then uh-huh. I have my other work. And they that's both so- feed off each other, but you know, it's nice to recognize, and it's nice to have that way of an output yeah that's awesome to think about it that way because I feel like your curatorial practice seems so collaborative versus a lot of curators that you know just like tell you what to do but it seems like yeah that you found a really beautiful way to use like curation as a conduit to continue these really important conversations yeah and and here at the ASU Art Museum I mean 80% of what I do are commission-based work. 
Okay. So it's always new work that is being created. And it's also a, a work that has a dialogue within this region. And so it can span many different types of um, mediums, but it, it, it always ends up having a dialogue with the Southwest, the border, mm-hmm. other issues that we're currently dealing with in this cultural climate. It's so amazing. And like looking at some of the programs that you guys have, like that LACMA, the partnership, you know, with like helping like new curators. That yeah, that's, that basically comes out of like, I'm 5%. Only 5% of all curators and museum directors are of color in the United that's States. So, so LACMA so was pretty up. amazing to work with us and create this new art history fellowship for students of color to be more in the field. And essentially, it's a fellowship where you get an MA art degree, you work for the museum for 32 hours, so you get experience and you get mentored by phenomenal people like Olga Viso, Rita Gonzalez, and and then um, Pettis Art Museum just joined as well. It's so awesome. It's so amazing. Do you have like a dream collaboration that you'd like to do, like either in your work or in like your curatorial practice? Right now I'm working on on something I just wanted to dream and it's sort of happening, which is I'm working on a new series of artworks with poets and musicians Mm -hmm. about the sounds and the experiences of the border, including, you know, like Mexican Institute of Sound. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Natalie Diaz, the poet. So I'm working my way through all these amazing people that I always wanted to work with. And so we're beginning to talk about it. So those are really, really something I've been wanting to do for a really long time with my experience with sound art, with music, and also being a DJ a long time ago, starting a record label, all these other things coming together to create this amazing series of, of projects. So I'm really so happy awesome. to 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 do that in the near future. Like I'm, I'm working on it now, actually. That's so cool. That's super exciting. This is what I usually tell artists and that's how I get into trouble. Yep. What is your dream project that you haven't had a chance to do? I am kind of trying to figure it out right now. I want to go back into, like spend time with the Border Art Workshop archives, which are housed at UCSD and kind of like read through a lot of that stuff and kind of right now at a place of like really thinking about how it differs to like work on the border as like a mother, as a woman, as like a femme-bodied person. Because so much of like traveling the border in the last few years has felt, you know, like it's a space that is increasingly like violent towards women. And so wanting to kind of like examine more what is it like to like to come at border-based work from like a place of like like nurturing and motherhood. I guess how am I shaping this border-based experience differently than, than the way that I was taught, see the way that we experienced it and the way that it was done before. Um, and maybe it's through performance and kind of, which makes me uncomfortable because I also like, like it's really hard to do performance stuff, mainly because I tend to, put upon myself like durational like really emotional shit but I yeah I do kind of want to like take some time to to explore yeah what it's like to to exist as a femme-bodied person 
Views is produced by me, Libby Flores, associate publisher of Bomb. It's edited and engineered by Will Smith with production assistance by Sage Swaby. Our theme music is Black Origami by Jalen. Subscribe to Fuse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.